Why, hello there, priests. You have found the hardest book review podcast there is, where we digest life-changing books. We shit out greatness, and we change our lives one book at a time. Are you ready? Are you ready? Are you ready? Let's go. And here we go. Welcome back. This is Troy Hollings with the Curiously Disagreeable Podcast. Self-defense is not only our right, it is our duty. Ronald Reagan. There's only one most basic principle of self-defense. You must apply the most effective weapon as soon as possible to the most vulnerable target. Bruce Lee. I put the five fingers in your face. I just learned to stay in my place. Ain't buy those pistols for play. I'ma aim to hit at your face. Fat Trell. The holiest of concepts, rivaling only the 80-20 principle in its importance. The God-given right to self-defense. And we on this podcast are such firm believers in self-defense that we've covered whole books like principles of personal defense, guns, bullets, gunfights, to teach us how to physically defend ourselves. We've even covered samurai philosophy in the Book of Five Rings and the Hagakure. But the world is changing. As Yamamoto Tsunatomo lamented and we agree, kids these days won't even behead a criminal with their hands behind their back. The world has gone fucking soft. Dueling is illegal. Can you believe that? And those enemies of ours who back in the day used to square off with us and allow us to best them with martial skill and be lauded as a hero and legally protected for defending our honor, those enemies have retreated to the world of the gray. No longer directly aggressive, now passive aggressive, or even worse, politically correct. And we have to deal with it. Because nowadays, we have a world filled with laws, rules, and regulations. Social decorum has become a language of its own. So actual physical personal defense is still obviously important. But as corporate executives are wont to say, it is necessary, but not sufficient. If we truly want to be kusemonos, we have to exist and win in this world, not the world of old. We have to exist amongst the ghost-like wraiths dressed in suits, the boss who all they care about is themselves, the backstabbing co-worker, the slimy car salesman, the insincere talent agent who promises us contracts to be a male model but you're pretty sure you're fucking about to be trafficked but you sign anyways. And if we stand for freedom of justice, we need to be able to defend ourselves in those situations we need a weapon because as any responsibly armed american knows the only thing that can stop a bad guy with a gun is a good guy with a gun and while not a gun this book is a weapon but not for the battlefield but for the ruthless courts of life for the fucking streets where death on the battlefield in service to sparta is the uh 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 sorry the 48 Laws of Power, Laws of Human Nature, How to Harness Them for Power, for Profit, and to Dominate. Now, little disclaimer, and there's going to be a lot of disclaimers throughout this damn book. This is the exact opposite of that book, The Go-Giver, which is like, to selflessly help everyone with no expectation, and karma's true. And I actually kind of am more likely to, to agree with The Go-Giver in many ways, like, over fucking generational time if you're a good dude like that comes back but not everybody does not everybody agrees with that and just like i want to live life never having to choke out a drunk guy who's harassing a lady if i find myself in that situation i'm mighty glad i know that one cool trick to make them go nighty night because this book this book is the calculating sociopath's handbook of world domination and I wish I was fucking kidding. I'm not. 
Don't fucking worry about fairly splitting the pie. This is how to outmaneuver everyone, grab the whole pie for yourself, and if you so choose, in your eminent wisdom and holy judgment, maybe give some pie to other people. And, and this book comes with a warning. With great power comes great responsibility. Rest in peace, Uncle Ben. This can be used for evil. And I, I will point out, shamelessly following these principles all the time is a recipe to get fucking murdered by bereaved people that you've outmaneuvered. But as a wise philosopher has been known to say, the truth is never mean. And if this isn't the truth, it's a form of truth. Take what you wish, discard the rest. The 48 Laws of Power, beloved by 50 Cent, Jay-Z, Busta Rhymes, Michael Jackson, and hundreds of famous people, as well as inmates all around the world. Written by Robert Greene, our buddy from Mastery. When he was working as a writer in Hollywood, he concluded that today's power elite shared similar traits to powerful figures throughout history. Uh, some damn LA Times noted that the 48 Laws of Power has turned Greene into a cult hero with the hip-hop set, Hollywood elite, and prison inmates alike. Big Herc, uh, the CEO of American Apparel, uh, that guy likes this book a lot. He gives it away, gives it away to people, and actually appointed Green on the board of directors. And for me personally, you know, I read this book in college, and um, it's one of those books that you don't you don't broadcast to anyone else that you're reading it. Someone finding out that you're reading this is it's like one step below someone finding out that you're reading like the bomb makers manual or like analingus for dummies or 50 shades darker not even 50 shades of gray you're on the sequel bitch that's what it is because we haven't seen this much blatant truth since rat to lab shouted us into submission but who cares time to die here we fucking go now we already did some damn introduction for Robert Greene on the Mastery episode. Go listen to that. Um, but he's a famous author. He wrote the book Mastery. He's he's been on the Joe Rogan podcast. I think he had a stroke. He's written some other books. And um, Fifty Cent, the rapper, loved this book. This one we're about to cover so much that he he actually cited it as as like very impactful to him. And then Robert Greene and Fifty Cent wrote a book together. He doesn't give a fuck. He went deep into the void. He realized curses were true, embedded himself in the Death Eater guerrilla war, and copied down all their secrets for our listening pleasure into the book. Dedication. He said a bunch of shit that I cut out, but um, I must not forget to pay tribute to my cat, Boris, who kept me company throughout the never-ending days of writing. And finally... To those people in my life who have so skillfully used the game of power to manipulate torture and cause me pain over the years, I bear you no grudges and I thank you for supplying me with inspiration for the 48 Laws of Power. Now, how I'm going to approach this book is, if you know how to listen to English words, you know there's 48 laws here. But as we all know, the holiest of principles is most likely also at work. So I'm gonna pick um, I'm gonna pick like 15 to 20 laws that are so legit, and then if you like it, eh, you're gonna have to do the technique of read the fucking book, little buddy. Preface: the feeling of having no power over people and events is generally unbearable to us. When we feel helpless, we feel miserable. No one wants less power; everyone wants more. In the world today, however, it is dangerous to seem too power hungry and to be overt in your power moves. We have to seem fair and decent, so we need to be subtle, congenial yet cunning, democratic yet devious. Get ready, dude. I told you this was the sociopath's fucking Girl Scout handbook. I cannot control him or be responsible for what happens. The game most resembles the power dynamic that existed in the scheming world of the old aristocratic courts. The courtiers, I believe the def that is uh, bitches of the court, including men, uh, who filled the court were in an especially delicate position. They had to serve their masters, but if they seemed to fawn, if they curried favor too obviously, the other courtiers around them would notice and act against them. Attempts to win the master's favor had to be subtle. Meanwhile, the court was supposed to represent the height of civilization and refinement. Violent 
or overt power moves, yeah, not cool. You know, you can't go shanking bitches. You gotta like, you gotta throw them down the toilet. Courtiers would work silently and secretly against any among them who used force. And this was the courtier's dilemma. You know, if, if I knew Greg over here was shanking bitches, well, we're all gonna come together and be like, you know what, I know we hate each other, but you know who we hate more? Greg. And so, you know, you, you kill Greg or something, something like that. That's what he's saying. Um, because while appearing to be the very paragon of excellence, they had to outwit and thwart their own opponents in the subtlest of ways. Instead of using coercion or outright treachery, the perfect courtier got his way through seduction, charm, deception, and subtle strategy, always planning several moves ahead. And today, we face a peculiarly similar paradox to that of the courtier. Everything must appear civilized. You know, ain't nobody doing a double leg in the break room at work. Everything needs to be decent, democratic, and fair. But if we play by those rules too strictly, if we take them too literally, we are crushed by those around us who are not so foolish. We gotta do like a double leg in the parking lot and then blame it on the crackheads. The game is the same. Outwardly, you must seem to respect the niceties, but unless you are a fool, you quickly learn to do as Napoleon advised and place your iron hand inside a velvet glove. Uh, dude, I know. Insanity. But just like we didn't sit here and try to correct Colonel Cooper when he said that ending the life of a criminal is one of, one of life's rare pleasures, I'm just reporting back, dog. After reading this book, you will be able to make people bend at your will without their realizing what you have done. And if they do not realize what you have done, they will neither resent nor resist you. The most important of these skills and power's crucial foundation is the ability to master your emotions. An emotional response to a situation is the single greatest barrier to power. Emotion clouds reason. And if you cannot see the situation clearly, you cannot prepare and respond with any degree of control. The ability to distance yourself from the present and think objectively about the past and future is also important. For the future, the motto is, no days unalert. Nothing should catch you by surprise because you are constantly imagining problems before they arise. When looking at the past, be constantly educating yourself, learning from those who have come before you. Power requires the ability to play with appearances. To this end, you must learn to wear many masks and keep a bag full of dicks, uh, deceptive tricks. Deception and masquerading should not be seen as ugly or immoral. For all human interaction requires deception on many levels, and it's what distinguishes us from the animals. Okay, little buddy. Uh, are you are you mentally retarded? <laughs> what? Uh, make your face as malleable as the actors. Work to conceal your intentions from others. Practice luring people into traps. Hey, look inside this box of popcorn. That's a dick. Playing with appearances and mastering arts of deception are among the aesthetic pleasures in life. If deception is the most powerful tool in your arsenal, then patience in all things is your crucial shield. Like mastering your emotions, patience is a skill. It does not come naturally. And in all of this, keep one principle in mind. Never discriminate as to whom you study and whom you trust. Never trust anyone completely and study everyone, including friends and loved ones. Now I'll say it now, and I actually used this example in a formal meeting with my boss and my boss's boss and the head of our marketing department at a billion dollar company. I said, you know what? The best marketing lesson I ever learned came from my redneck friend. Because if you, if you want to eat a deer that you see on the side of the road, well, you don't say, hey, mama, I brought you some roadkill. Ah, that, no one wants to eat roadkill. We're not savages here. What you say is, oh, hey, mama, well, this deer got hit. And so I didn't want to waste the meat. And then mama's like, well, that makes sense. And then you eat the roadkill. And so when I was explaining, I said, hey, um, I think I think how we position this is really important. And everyone just looked at me fucking shocked. But then they did what I said because I had acquired power like Mr. Green suggested. Finally, you must learn always to take the indirect route to power. If you do this, you could appear to be the paragon of decency while being the consummate manipulator. 
consider the 48 Laws of Power a kind of handbook in the arts of indirection. The laws have a simple premise. Certain actions almost always increase one's power, the observance of the law, while others almost, almost always decrease it. Get ready, insanity follows. I have taken the most important of these laws, stripped out the bullshit, we got the 80-20, it's time to die. Law one, never outshine the master. Summary, always make those above you feel comfortably superior. In your desire to impress them, do not go too far in displaying your talents or you might accomplish the opposite. You might inspire fear and insecurity. Make your masters appear more brilliant than they are and you will attain the heights of power. Transgression of the law. And so Mr. Green, he's all damn literary and shit and so he has a summary to start and then he does either the observance of the law or the transgression of the law so like if the law is give kids candy observance would be and then john gave a child candy and if if transgression would be and then john took the fucking child's candy away and so that's what he's doing so he sort of started this one with transgression of the law nicholas fuket louis xivs finance minister in the first years of his reign was a generous man who loved lavish parties, pretty women, and poetry. I'm down with two of those three, you guys guess. He also loved money. Okay, I'm down with three of those four, you guys guess, and led an extravagant lifestyle. Fouquet was clever and indispensable to the king. So when the current prime minister died, Fouquet was thinking he'd be named prime minister. Instead, the king abolished the position. Fouquet suspected he might be falling out of favor, and so he decided to ingratiate himself with the king by staging the most spectacular party the world had ever seen. To, to pay tribute to the king, obviously. It wasn't because he was so cool. That's, what, that's, how, he, that's how he positioned it in, the, in, in his mind. It was a baller party, basically. It was so insane. I mean, I've been to some crazy fucking parties, and this was like, I don't know, 35, no, like 300 times bigger. Insane. Uh, they had a playwright write an actual play. Everybody got hammered. They walked through some gardens. There was fireworks. But the next day, Fouquet was arrested. He was put on trial for stealing the king's treasury, which he'd actually done because the king was like, hey, dude, just use the company card. He's like, for real? Buy my lunch with company card? He's like, yeah, it's not worry about it. And now they're like, you stole from the company. That's what happened to him. He was sent to the most isolated prison in France and ended up being in solitary confinement. Solitary means without ladies for 20 years. Interpretation. And so Mr. Green, he lays it out and then he interprets it for us. And then he, then he goes into the keys to power. Interpretation. The king was a proud and arrogant man who wanted to be the center of attention at all times. He could not countenance being outdone in lavishness by anyone and certainly not his little bitch-ass finance minister. Once that bitch was, oh God, that's in, that's in quotes. I don't think that's what Mr. Green said, but we're going with it. Once that bitch was fired, the king hired a yes man, and he built a palace even more magnificent than Fouquet's, the glorious palace of Versailles. If you guys have heard of Versailles, see, the reason he built that is because Fouquet over here had, threw a crazy ass party and he got all jealous. So let's examine the situation. On the evening of the party, each magnificent spectacle you know it actually didn't bring him into the king's favor by showing his good taste oh my god look how look how well bred my finance minister is instead each spectacle made it made it seem to lewis the king that his own friends and subject were more charmed by fouquet than the king himself rather than flattering lewis the elaborate party offended the king's vanity louise would not admit this to anyone, of course. Instead, he found a convenient excuse to rid himself of a man who had inadvertently made him feel insecure. Such is the fate, in some form or other, of all those who unbalance the master's sense of self, poke holes in his vanity, or make him doubt his preeminence. So, what he's saying is, hey, you got the master? Well, you just gotta operate like the master's an insecure little baby. And if they're not, great, wonderful, exciting. But if they are, you're ready for it. Because Fouquet over here, 
was like, we're going to hold the biggest fucking party ever. And he invites France, all of France. They, they get Everybody gets fucking wasted. It's insane. There's dancing on the tables. You know, they have a, they have a seven-headed girl show up to the party. And the king is like, each one of those heads reminds me that I don't have a seven-headed girl under my employ. And the king got insecure. And he ultimately made up some bullshit reason like, yeah, he was doing timesheet fraud. And then he fired him. Keys to power. Everyone has insecurities. When you show yourself in the world and display your talents, you naturally stir up all kinds of resentment, envy, and other manifestations of insecurity. This is to be expected. When it comes to power, outshining the master is perhaps the worst mistake of all. Do not fool yourself into thinking that life has changed so much since the days of Louis XIV and the Medicis. Those who attain high standing in life want to feel secure in their positions and superior to those around them in intelligence, wit, and charm. This law involves two rules that you must realize. First, you can inadvertently outshine the master simply by being yourself. Maybe you're hot as fuck and you're in your boss. Hey, your boss is single trying to pick up chicks and you just are alive in the bar and you're just, oh, and you're just fighting them off and you're slapping them away and you're like, hey, here, hold this. And then you just leave. Your boss is jealous because your boss, your boss wants, wants a wife, but, but you have a hundred. So the first is just by being you, you can outshine the master. And second, never imagine that because the master loves you, you can do anything you want. Knowing the danger of outshining the master, you can turn this law to your advantage. First, you must flatter and puff up your master. Oh, master, your side profile looks so good. Overt flattery can be effective, but it has its limits. Discreet flattery is much more powerful. Oh, master, this this lighting is really good. Well, why do you say that? Well, I, never mind. No, 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 tell me, tell me. Oh, no, never mind, never mind. Well, just tell me. Your side profile right there chef's kiss looks good <laughs> discreet flattery if you are more intelligent than your master seem the opposite act naive make it seem that you need his expertise commit harmless mistakes oh god damn it i'm sorry I, I thought it was the men's room again my bad in all of these it is not a weakness to disguise your strengths if in the end they lead to power by letting others outshine you you remain in control now, my interpretation, that's all pretty clear because we all understand words. Uh, and, and I don't know how true that is because, like, what if your boss is just, like, a normal fucking person? Um, but I do know one thing, and that's if you're working for someone, the key to being successful is make your boss look fucking good. Because if you make your boss look so goddamn good, like, there's no negative to that. What, you want to take some credit for yourself? Like, bitch, you're not going to get promoted past your boss okay so you make your boss look good don't care about credit crush it just give success to the team give credit to your boss and ultimately when your team wins who's gonna get promoted i don't know that guy who's wanting to always make sure that they get credit hey, hey can you make sure that my name's on that proposal as the proposed from or the guy who's super cool to be around and just you know hey you know, every time greg's on this team we win so the first rule we will obey in our quest to become rich, jacked, and gods among men is never outshine the master. <sighs> so I found some scotch on uh, clearance, <laughs> and it was fucking good. $32 scotch, $19. I think it was on clearance just because I live in it with a bunch of rednecks who don't know about scotch, myself included. Regardless, pretty fucking good. It's called like Highland something or other. Law 3. You're going to have to buy the book if you want Law 2 conceal your intention summary keep people off balance and in the dark by never revealing the purpose behind your actions if they have no clue what you're up to they cannot prepare a defense guide them far enough down the wrong path envelop them in enough smoke and by the time they realize your intentions it'll be too late and you'll have eaten them alive basically something like that now mr green is getting a little bit crazy with this law and there's two parts <laughs> So here we go. Part one, use decoyed objects of desire and red herrings to throw people off the scent. Transgression of the law. Over several weeks, 
Ninon de Lenclaves, the most infamous courtesan prostitute of, senth, of 7th century France, listened patiently as the Marquis de Sévigné explained his struggles pursuing a beautiful but difficult young countess. The Marquise, I think that maybe is how it's pronounced in French, was dashing, handsome, and hopelessly inexperienced with romance. So this 62-year-old famous prostitute took the Marquis under her wing, instructing the Marquis to start over. Ninon, the prostitute, told him to approach the Countess with a bit of distance, an air of nonchalance. The next time the two were alone together, he would confide in the Countess as would a friend not a potential lover you know when i eat a bunch of oreos my eyes go fucking black and i just want to kill and then uh she'd be like that's weird that's not something that you'd really say to a lover this though was just to throw her off the scent the countess would no longer take his interest for granted ninan planned ahead once the countess was confused it would be time to make her jealous at the next encounter he would be seen with a beautiful young woman on his side She's like, that's a, that's a black-eyed Oreo guy. Holy shit, that girl's so hot. What the? There's three of them? I thought he was an idiot, but oh man, those hot girls must like him. Maybe maybe I was wrong. This beautiful young woman, woman would have equally beautiful friends. So whenever the Countess would see the Marquis, he'd be surrounded by beautiful women. Once the Countess was a little bit jealous but intrigued, it would be time to beguile her on Ninan, the prostitute, instructions the marquis would fail to show up at affairs where the countess expected to see him you know you don't go to her birthday party then suddenly he'd appear at salons he'd never frequented before but the countess often attended you know you don't go to her damn birthday party but you show up when she's getting her hair done you're like hey i want to get my hair did and then they're like you don't have hair like shut your mouth i'm a marquess these moves were executed and took several weeks Ninan monitored the Marquise's progress. She heard the Countess was suddenly asking questions about him. Hey, that black-eyed, no-haired guy seems pretty cool, laughing at his jokes. Ninan felt certain the young woman was falling under his spell. It was just a matter of weeks, maybe a month or two, but if all went smoothly, the Citadel walls would open. <laughs> a few days later, the Marquis was at the Countess's home. They were alone. Suddenly, he was a different man. This time, acting on his own impulses he professed his love for her so he's like you know what all that stuff i said about the oreos it was a lie i'm in love with you she's like what the fuck this young woman seemed confused she became polite then excused herself and never came back the spell was broken nina knew that men and women are very different but when it comes to seduction they feel the same deep down inside they often sense when they are being seduced but they give in because they enjoy the, the feeling of being led along. It is a pleasure to let go and allow the other person to detour you into strange country. Everything in, a seduc everything in seduction, however, depends on suggestion. You cannot announce your intentions or reveal them directly. Instead, you must throw your targets off the scent. You have to appear interested in another man or woman, the decoy. Then hint at being interested in the target then feign indifference such patterns not only confuse but excite so you you maybe your target has black hair you make a comment around her and i just think black haired girls are ugly and then she's like oh my god and then you tell her your, your side profile looks nice she's like what the fuck is going on I, I love you i think that's what he's saying think about the countess she sensed the marquis was playing some game with her but it was exciting. What was going to happen? Ooh, fascinating. But the moment the Marquis uttered the fatal word, I love you, all was changed. This was no longer a game with moves. It was an artless show of passion. All that had been done before that had seemed charming now seemed ugly and conniving. You showed up at my fucking hair salon even though you didn't have hair? The Countess felt embarrassed and used. A door closed oh, that would never open again. Keys to power. Most people are open books. They say what they feel, they blurt out their opinions at every opportunity and constantly reveal their plans and intentions. 
Is he just describing me? Yeah, great point. Honesty is actually a blunt instrument, though, which bloodies more often than it cuts. Your honesty is likely to offend people. It is more prudent to tailor your words, telling people what they want to hear rather than the coarse and ugly truth of what you feel or think. Jesus Christ, Mr. Green. If you yearn for power, train yourself in the art of concealing your intentions. Master the art and you will always have the upper hand. Basic to an ability to conceal one's intentions is a simple truth of human nature. Our first instinct is always trust appearances. We cannot go around doubting the reality of what we see or hear. You know, you see a guy with a dog, you don't, you, you just assume it's a guy with a dog. You're not like, I bet he stole that dog. <laughs> what a fucking weird thing to say. And so simply dangle an object you seem to desire, a goal you seem to aim for in front of people's eyes, and they will focus on the decoy and fail to notice what you are really up to. Another powerful tool in throwing people off the scent is false sincerity. People easily mistake sincerity for honesty. Remember, their first instinct is to trust appearances. <laughs> yeah, I like your dog. They will rarely doubt you or see through your act. You stole that dog, son. Remember, the best deceivers do everything they can to cloak their roguish qualities. They cultivate an air of honesty in one area to disguise their dishonesty in others. You know, maybe you donate to the ASPCA to make up karmically that you stole a dog. Honesty is merely another decoy in their arsenal of weapons. Now, concealing our intentions. Got it. Uh, and this is part one. Use decoyed objects. So I've talked about this horribly stupid example incoming. So for the longest time, the least manly fact about me was that my first and for a long time only concert that I went to was to see the band Owl City. The absolute worst band on the fucking planet. But I was dating this crazy girl and she really loved this band and I despised it. But I never really told her. Like I joked, but I was like, no, they're pretty good. They had this one shitty song called Fireflies that was her favorite. So I somehow... Oh, I know how. Uh, I paid for it. I acquired tickets using my actual money. And we went to this concert for her birthday. And this was when I was like maybe six months when I was coming off the back of cutting weight for wrestling. And I was I was legit unable to control my deep fucking rage whenever I got annoyed. And this was one of those times. The concert was terrible. I was sweaty, they didn't scream once, and it was hell. Pure, unadulterated hell. But she turned to me and asked, Hey, are you having fun? And though my body language was that of someone eyeing a window calculating if jumping out would actually kill them, I was able to contort my facial features into something loosely resembling a human smile, and I said, Oh yeah, I'm totally having fun. And that concert ended up being a thing she looked back on fondly and used it as an example in her mind of how thoughtful I was. I used a red herring, I concealed my intention and watched her believe what she wanted to believe. Because now I say on record, I'd rather get smoked in the testicles with a fast pitch tennis ball than attend a three hour Owl City concert again. I felt that way then and I still do now. What? Part two. Use smoke screens to disguise your actions. Summary. Deception is always the best strategy, but the best deceptions re require a screen of smoke to distract people's attention from your real purpose. The bland exterior, like the unreadable poker face, is often the perfect smoke screen. Observance of the law. In 1910, Mr. Sam Giesel of, of Chicago sold his warehouse business for close to $1 million. He settled down to semi-retirement and managing some properties, but deep down, he itched for the times of fucking and late nights. One day, a young man named Joseph came to his office wanting to buy an apartment. Giesel explained him the terms. He said, hey, the price is about 8000 but I only require 2000 down now. While said he would, or says Joseph Weil, so, so Joseph said he would sleep on it. 
Uh, but he came back the following day and he offered to pay the full 8000 in cash if Giesel could wait a couple days until a deal Weil was working on came through. Even in semi-retirement, a clever businessman like Giesel was curious as to how Weil would be able to come up with that much cash in roughly $150,000 so quickly. Well, Weil was kind of reluctant to say and, and quickly changed the subject, but, but Giesel was persistent. So he's like, hey man, just curious, like, how do you have $150,000 of fucking cash right now? And Giesel's like, well, you know, it's a, it's, that's a personal question. But um, he's curious. Finally, after assurances of confidentiality, Weil told Giesel the following story. He said, well, I got an uncle that was uh, the secretary to a bunch of multi-million dollar financiers. These wealthy gentlemen, uh, they bought a hunting lodge in Michigan about 10 years ago at a cheap price. For reasons, good reasons, his uncle has been nursing a grudge against these millionaires for years. This was his chance to get back at them. He would sell the property for $35,000 to a setup man who it was Wiles' job to find. The financiers were too wealthy to worry about this low price. I'm like, well, old chap, I thought that was worth more than that. No, no matter, I'm rich as hell. Um, the setup man would then turn around and sell the property again for the real price, $155,000. The uncle, Weil, and the third man would split the profits from the second sale. It was all legal and for a good cause. I was like, hey, it's not my fault. This, I, Dude, I didn't know. My bad. Uh, Giesel had heard enough. He wanted to be the setup buyer. But Weil, he was reluctant. He was like, hey, man, uh, I, I don't want to do that. No, dude, I don't, I don't want to involve you in my roguish businesses. But the idea of a large profit plus a little adventure had him chomping at the bit. Weil explained to Giesel that you you know you have to put you have to put up thirty five thousand dollars in cash to to bring the deal off. Like, are you sure you want to do that? But Weil finally relented and agreed to arrange a meeting between his uncle Giesel and the financiers. On the train, Giesel met the uncle, but then also a somewhat paunchy, meaning fucking fat. Uh, man named George Gross. Weil explained to Giesel that he himself was actually a boxing trainer and that he had asked Gross to come along to make sure the fighter stayed in shape. So he's like, hey, I know we got this deal going on, but oh yeah, like my day job, I'm actually like a boxing trainer. I'm good at boxing. And so uh, this is one of my fighters, but like I wanted him to come along. You know, he's kind of lazy and like I got I to gotta work with him. Okay, so so that's why he's here. For a promising fighter, Gross was unimpressive looking. He had gray hair and a beer belly. But Giesel was so excited about the deal that he didn't really think about the man's flabby appearance. You know, I'd be like, that's weird. What weight class do you fight in? You fight in what? 250? That's not a weight class, dude. I'd be on to him. But Giesel, he wasn't. He was seeing dollar signs. So they meet with the financiers. He buys the lodge for 35000 All seems fine. This minor business now settled, the financiers sat back in their chairs and began to banter about high finance, throwing, about the, throwing out the name J.P. Morgan as if they knew the man. And so, so they, he buys the, you know, he thinks, hey, dude, I just got this fucking hunting lot for 35K. It's actually worth 150K. Hell yeah. And so they sit back down, they're smoking cigars. They're like, you know, old chap, uh, when, when John Pierpont Morgan, you know, when he and I were in Oxford together, you know, we got in a little bit of trouble. And so uh, they're like, fuck, this is crazy. And, um, but it just so happens that the financiers, they actually had a boxer too, which again, huh, who just travels around with fucking boxers? But hey, Giesel's not paying attention. Weil laughed brazenly and explained that his man could easily knock out their man. It's like, you know, you close a fucking deal and you don't, you haven't escaped yet. And then, you know, you're like, hey, my guy could kick your guy's ass. And all of a sudden, an argument escalates. In the heat of passion, Wilde challenged the man to a bet. The financiers eagerly agreed and left to get the man, to get their man, for a fight the next day. As soon as they had left, the uncle yelled at Wilde right in front of Giesel. They did not have enough money to bet with. And once the, finan and once the financiers discovered this, the uncle would be fired. Weil apologized, but it just so happened that he knew the other boxer, and with a little bit of cash, he could fix the fight. So he's like, hey, guys, listen, I know the other boxer. 
I could fix this fight. I could fake it. We could, we could fucking fake it. Finally, Giesel had had enough. Unwilling to jeopardize his deal with any ill will, he offered to put his own $35,000 for part down for part of the bet. The uncle and the nephew thanked him. With his 35k and their 15k, they would have enough to bet. The fighters took place. The fight took place in a gym the next day. Weil handled the cash, which is placed for security in a locked box. The fight started, all seemed to be going well, their boxer was winning, and then a wild swing by the financier's fighter hits Gross hard in the face, knocking him down. When he hit the canvas, blood spurted from his mouth. He coughed, then lay still. One of the financiers, a former doctor, checked his pulse. Oh God, he's dead! He's dead! The millionaire panicked. Everyone had to get out before the police arrived. They could all be charged with murder. Terrified, Giesel hightailed it out of the gym and back to Chicago, leaving behind his 35000 which he was only too happy to forget about because it was a small price to pay to avoid be Im- being implicated in a murder. He never wanted to see Weil or any of the others again. But after Giesel scurried out, Gross, the boxer, stood up under his own steam. The blood that had spurted out of his mouth came from a ball filled with chicken blood and hot water. He'd hidden it in his cheek. The whole affair had been masterminded by Weil, known as the Yellow Kid, one of the most creative con artists in history. A nice little profit for a few days' work. The Yellow Kid had staked out Giesel as the perfect sucker. He had to, he had to conceal his intentions and switch attention, create a smokescreen, in this case the sale of the lodge. And Giesel... He'd bought it all. He'd failed to notice that Gross was out of shape and middle-aged at best. Such is the distracting power of the smokescreen. In this case, easy money. Learn from the yellow kid. The familiar inconspicuous front is the perfect smokescreen. Approach your mark with an idea that seems ordinary enough. A business deal. Financial intrigue. The sucker's mind is distracted. His suspicions allayed, that is when you gently guide him onto the second path, the slippery slope down which he slides helplessly into your trap. If you believe that deceivers are colorful folks who mislead with elaborate lies and tales, you are greatly mistaken. The best deceivers utilize a bland and inconspicuous front that calls no attention to themselves. Oh, we're just buying a building. Don't worry about it, buddy. It's fine. Once you have lulled your sucker's attention with the familiar, they will not notice the deception being perpetrated behind their backs. Hey, would you like a bunch of free scones? Yeah, there's roofies in them. This derives from the simple truth. People can only focus on one thing at a time. The graver and more uniform the smoke is for your smoke screen, the better it conceals your intentions. Remember, it takes patience and humility to dull your brilliant colors. To put on the mask of the inconspicuous. Do not despair in having to wear such a bland mask. It is often your unreadability that draws people to you and makes you appear a person of power. Jesus Christ, Mr. Green. That's law three. Conceal your intention. Ah, This whiskey sponsored my podcast. Law four. Always say less than necessary. Judgment. So that's like the summary. When you're trying to impress people with words, the more you say, the more common you appear and the less in control. Even if you're saying something banal, it will seem original. If you make it vague, open-ended, and sphinx-like. Powerful people impress and intimidate by saying less. The more you say, the more likely you are to say something foolish. Transgression of the law. So this guy, Gnaeus Marcius, also known as Cory Anus. God damn it, guys. What the fuck kind of names are that? Cory Anus? Coriolanus? I don't know, man. So Coriolanus was a great military hero of ancient Rome. In the first half of some time long ago, he won lots of battles, saving the city from calamity time and time again. Few Romans knew him personally, so it made him this legendary figure. But in 454 BC, Coriolanus decided it was time to exploit his reputation and enter politics. He's like, yeah, man, I've been, I've been saving this damn city for years. Time to get some rewards, son. 
he stood for election to the high rank of consul. But when the polling day arrived, however, Coriolanus made an entry into the forum, escorted by the entire Senate and by the city's patriarchs, patricians, the aristocracy, the common people who saw this were disturbed by such a blustering show of confidence on election day. So he gets walked in to election day yeah, just by every single person in the fucking government. And when Corlinanus spoke again, mostly addressing the wealthy citizens who had accompanied him. So there's like hundreds of poor people around and like seven wealthy people, but he like only talks to the wealthy people. His words were arrogant and insolent, claiming certain victory in the vote. He boasted of his battlefield exploits that it made sour jokes that appealed only to the patricians. <laughs> Look at all these poor people. Watch me eat some fucking bread in front of them. Then he eats a whole loaf of fucking bread. And he, and he bragged about the potential riches he would bring to Rome. You know, look at this shithole. Man, once I'm elected, you know what? Everybody's gonna get a hundred fucking slaves. And you're like, Coriolanus, where are we gonna find those? No. But this time, people listened. They had not realized that this legendary soldier was also a common braggart. News of Coriolanus' speech spread quickly through Rome and the people turned out in great numbers to make sure he was not elected. They're like, hey, yeah, I guess this guy's only good at killing. Uh, we don't want him. He didn't get elected. A few weeks later, there was some uh, shipment of grain, and Coriolanus showed up. And, dude, I'm like only slightly trying to be funny. Like, I basically cannot say his name. Uh, and he showed up, and, and he ranted about how stupid democracy was and how the common citizens don't deserve anything. So this dude, everybody loves him. He goes, he just talks a shitload. He makes a bunch of shitty jokes like, ha ha ha, look at all these holes in everybody's shirts. Like, uh, yeah, they're fucking peasants, dude. Fuck you. And then there's a shipment of grain that shows up and there's something and he like, he shows up next to the delivery when all the poor people are like, oh my God, food, food, food. And he's like, Fuck you guys. Ha ha. I have food and you don't. And so word of that speech reached people and their anger knew no bounds. So he, they were like trying to salvage this shit politically. And he's like, okay, fine. I'll give an apology speech. And then as the speech went on though, and this is like his third speech. As the speech went on, he became more and more blunt. Arrogant. I'm sorry that you are poor. Yet again, he hurled insults. He's like, ever heard of a bathtub? Look at you fuckers. I've seen chipmunks with more money in their fucking cheeks. Finally, they shouted him down and silenced him. The tribunes conferred, the tribunes conferred, condemned Coriolanus to death and ordered the magistrates to take him at once to the top of Tarpian Rock and throw him over. So he goes from like the fucking best war hero ever to like within a couple months, he's so socially unaware, they chuck him off a rock. <sighs> Interpretation. Before his entrance in politics, the name Coriolanus, <laughs> I fucking can't do it, man, uh, evoked awe. His battlefield accomplishments showed him as a man with great bravery and a giant schlong. Since the citizens knew little about him, all kinds of legends became attached to his name. I heard he had two Venuses. I heard he had four. I heard one, but it was stone. Since the citizens, they didn't know anything. They were like, oh my God, it's a legend. But the moment he appeared before the Romans and spoke his mind, all that grandeur and mystery vanished. They, they saw he actually had a micro penis. He bragged and blustered like a common soldier. You know, it's like you're a doctor and you meet the hottest girl ever at a bar. And she's so amazing and beautiful and you're scared to even look at her. And you go up and you're like, hello, my name is Troy, I'm a doctor. And then a couple hours later at your shift in the hospital, because, you know, all doctors go to the bars before work, uh, you see the same girl covered in shit, vomiting and having horrible food poisoning. She's got the worst case of poo pants you've ever seen. Wow. That mysterious siren, that buxom beauty, that forbidden fox from the bar is revealed as a common human who currently has poo pants and smells like the gut pile after field dressing a deer. Then you propose to her. I think that's what he's saying. 
Had Coriolanus said less, the people would have never had cause to be offended by him and would never have known his true feelings. He would have maintained his powerful aura and would certainly have been elected and would have been able to accomplish his goal. So, uh, an example that came to my mind, I weirdly know so much about the People's Temple cult since uh, there's this podcaster, Daryl Cooper, Martyr Maid. Um, he, he did like a 30-hour series on the, the People's Temple cult. And initially, Jim Jones, he was in Indiana. He was a preacher. And he like just kind of was normal. And then he like did a little bit of faith healing and, you know, did a little bit of like sleight of hand, magician shit. He'd stage magic. He'd like show up late. He'd put on a show. He'd, he'd have some confederates who, you know, be like, oh my God, he healed my body. And then and everyone would be like, holy shit. And then people would just like kind of believe it. Um, and so, but it was cool. He became scarce and he was wonderful and his patrons loved him. But as his church grew, so did his ego. It got so out of control that he moved everyone to Guyana, which is somewhere, and in the jungle. And there, completely fucked up on amphetamines, he would grab the camp microphone, so like it's a camp with 2,000 people, and he would just rant incoherently for hours. My children, oh, um, believe I am the prophet, you know my words. There's recordings, and like Daryl Cooper's <laughs> include like, lots and lots and lots of recordings and it's like dude like i don't want to just listen to psycho fucking jim jones for i don't know four minutes but hey whatever what began as a mystery holy shit this guy's figured it out turned into wow how the fuck do we get out of this guyana jungle before we die here spoiler you don't keys to power Power is in many ways a game of appearances, and when you say less than necessary, you inevitably appear greater and more powerful than you are. Your silence will make other people uncomfortable. When you carefully control what you reveal, people cannot pierce your intentions or your meaning. Your short answers and silences will put them on the defense, and they will jump in nervously, filling the silence with all kinds of comments that will reveal valuable information about them and their weaknesses. So in sales, there's an acronym that's called CASTFU, C-A-S-T-F-U. So when you, when you present the price to a, to a prospect, um, CASTFU, close and shut the fuck up. So, so what you basically say is like, so after putting this into our pricing model, it looks like the overall price to solve all of these issues you're dealing with comes out to be $42,350. Does that sound pretty reasonable? Then just be quiet. People will say things like, wow, that's a lot. Be quiet. I remember, I remember one time at Angie's List, I was quiet and someone was like, hello, hello, are you there? And I was like, yeah, I'm here. I just thought you were kind of like thinking it through. Quiet. Close the fucking deal. Saying less than necessary is not just for kings and statesmen. In most areas of life, the less you say, the more profound and mysterious you seem. Holy shit. That's, we're four laws in. We, <laughs> it's going to be an 800 hour podcast. But if you want to learn, laws five. Laws 8, laws 12, 15, more laws, 48 laws of power, so that ultimately you can conquer whatever situation you're in and you can become immortal. You're going to have to tune in next time on the next episode of the Curiously Disagreeable Podcast. Thank you. Thank you very much. And that's my pretties, is another episode down of the Curiously Disagreeable Podcast. Check us out at CuriouslyDisagreeable.com, the Troy Hollings on Instagram, or wherever the fuck you get your podcasts. The end.